We are back. Today for a mitzvah shir, and we are at mitzvah number two. Mitzvah number two. Today's mitzvah, as recorded in the Rambam, is the mitzvah of Yichud Hashem, the oneness of God, the command that we have to believe God is one, singular, Echad. Um, what does that mean? Let's go through that today. And obviously, what's going to be interesting is, because in the previous weeks we've noted that there's always machok, there's always debate. So is someone really going to debate the fact that God is a multiplicity? There's more than one God? Maybe. Really? That seems to be heresy. So let's see what happens today. First, let's begin with the Rambam on top. The Rambam, again, is in Sefer Mitzvos, which is the book where he counts all 613 Mitzvos. Mitzvah number two is, The command we have to believe in the God's unity. And that is, we believe that the power over existence and its first cause are one. As if to say that the world came into creation, and the thing that made the world come into creation and runs the world is all one singular unity, it's God. And we'll, and we'll explain a little more what that means in a second. But suffice it to say that if you were a polytheist, or believed in Avodah Zarah, an idol worship, so you probably believe there are multiple gods, each one who is responsible for the various contradictory forces in the world. As in, there is something that one could argue makes sense. Fire and water contradict each other, so one will be one god, and one will be from a different god. This was the common belief back then. And Vuhu Omar Yisala, and this is the, ver- the source for the, uh, this, is what the word, this is what we're essentially we're saying when we say the, when we say the, when we say the Pasuk twice a day, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord is one. Which, by the way, the Shulchan Aruch and the Mishdevura point out, when we say that Pasuk, we're supposed to have this in mind, that God is one. Not just read it, but that, that's part of what we're doing. And it goes beyond it, And in many Midrashic texts, you'll find them saying, on the condition that they unify my name, on the condition that they unify me. And many like this. Again, this is something that constantly comes up. And even if you think, and if anyone's ever looked at the... Uh, the Lishem Yichuds, which are the more ca- the Kabbalistic preface to a lot of mitzvah, we, we use that term again, Liachdu Shemo, Liach, and it's a Shrinte. Again, the unity, the unity, the unity, which also in Kabbalah, and I'll try to talk about it a little bit, in Kabbalah there seems to be multiple aspects to the Sviros, to God, what does that mean? So we're constantly the that. There was uh, someone who wrote a book who wanted to argue that clearly there is room in Judaism to believe there's multiple parts of God, as you see in Kabbalah, but I think that's. Uh, Amaratsus. That, that I didn't understand what the Kabbalah was doing. In fact, my professor, Professor Dauber from Revel, he just wrote a book. I believe it just was, was just published. It was an academic book. It probably cost like fifteen thousand dollars per book. But um, where he tries to show in the in Kabbalah what exactly it means to have unity. Um, and what they want with such a statement is, well, let's just read in English, is that he indeed took us out of slavery. He did the various kindnesses and benefits and condition that we believe in his unity as in seemingly that's one of the reasons why God is took out, as we are obligate in this. And they often say the commandment of unification. And they also called the commandment, uh, they called it the commandment of the acceptance, the yoke of heaven. The Kabbalah Zamach HaShemayim, as they say, in order to accept upon oneself the yoke of heaven. Something we've heard before, this idea of Kabbalah Zamach HaShemayim, meaning acknowledgement of his unity and belief in it. So this is the first, this is the second command, to believe in God and to believe in his unity. Kabbalah Samach Hashemayim, that's what Krishna is about. 
seemingly the fact that we require one to say Krishma, or we say so much to say Krishma. For instance, Rabbi Akiva, what were the last words in his life? Shema. Shema. So he's dying, Al-Kiddush Hashem, he's, he's being put to death, dying a martyr's death, and he says, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkein Hashem Echad. He's accepting upon himself yoga of heaven, what he's, what he's really doing is he's saying, I believe God is one. This seems to be the ultimate expression of acceptance of God. Again, the unity. So there's something very important about this idea of the unity of God. As we noted in one of the earlier shirim, that when you go to the Mishnah Torah, so you'll find, you can, you'll find the parallels. That the, the Sefer HaMitzvot, this book of 613 commands, was an introduction to the larger work of the Mishnah Torah. And in the Mishnah Torah, you'll find that he looks, the Rambam explains uh, at length the more uh, intricate halachos for all these various mitzvos. So what do you say in Mishnah Torah? This is in Hilchus Yisodia Torah, the foundations of the Torah. Chapter 1, 7. Elokei Zechad, this God is one. The Enushnaim is not two. All right, that so far makes sense. If you're one, you're not two. But then the Rambam is going to say it's, it's more than that. But lo and not more than two. So first of all, the question is, what's the redundancy here? It's not two, not more than two. Like if the Rambam said he's not three, we, could, we probably understand what he's doing. He's taking a shot at Christianity. What's the idea that he's, 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 he's why, why the redundancy? So the Rambam is going to explain, We're talking about a sui generis sort of idea. It's not singular in one the way we have one in this world. In this world, we can have, for instance, America is a confederacy of 50 states. It's broken up. It's multiple parts that we call, we, we call unity of the United States of America. So the Rambam is saying it's, that's not like the things in this world where you have many, everything in this world can be broken into many parts. They're, they're atoms, multiple atoms. Even the atom itself has many different parts. When we talk about God, we're not talking about even, there's not, there's not parts that go into the whole here. It's not singular as if it's part, God is singular in the sense that he includes many, many parts. That's not what we're talking about here. God cannot be subdivided. There's no, there's, there's, there's no concept of even, when you think of a body, a body has multiple different parts. You have a hand, you have a leg, all that comes together to form one body. When we talk about, the, when we talk about God, we're not talking about that at all. It's a totally different concept. Almost it's hard to grasp. That a number, again, even a number, it could be subdivided. God, we say one, again, it's, it's sui generis, meaning it's totally singular. It's, it's beyond almost what we can comprehend. It's singular in that respect. El yichach en yichach echa kamos v'olam. This is the Ramam. There is no singular, there's no one um, there's, like this in the world. Again, we're talking about something that's beyond, that's beyond the concept of numbers in this world. Because everything in this world, says the Rambam, is made up of parts. And this is why it's very important to say this way. He says, because once we're discussing something that's made up of more than one part, that has some sort of physical entity, what you're saying is there has to be a point of creation in order for something to be created. There has to be some sort of body. But we're talking about God, which another principle is God has no body. God has no beginning. So then you can't, then, we, then we're not talking about parts. Well, again, his proof is, or his point is, once you're talking about something that's created, even the smallest thing, or once you're talking about something that has multiple parts, there has to be a point of creation, a point where it didn't exist, and the point where it existed, and now this is where it starts from. But we're saying when God is echad, unified, there's no, there's no comparison in this world because God doesn't have a body. There's no starting point. And that's why there's no multiple parts to it. 
Again, God is constant. There's no beginning. There's no end. This is, this is God is infinite. So once there's no body, there's no body to it, so there's not going to be any, any, any ability to split him up. It's impossible to have more than one. Once we're talking about something that's not created, the idea there is that, and this is important, and this I concept is this 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 knowledge is a mitzvah ase shenemar shema yisrael hashem elokenu hashem echad. That's what the Rambam says. Out of this, I think, comes some very interesting ideas. Number one, number one is this is actually the source for one of the oldest questions in the book, and that is. The concept of how can there be free will if God knows the future? Because from a philosophical perspective, the way in which the philosophers and the Jewish and non-Jewish set it up is as follows. It's not like it's not just a very the question isn't just oh how can God know the future? So therefore there's no free will. The question is as follows: If we assume God is all knowing and all powerful and knows the future, so then how do we have freedom because God knew what I was going to do? So There's a very easy way to get out of it and say, perhaps, God didn't know the future, and once we do it, then God knows. But what we're implying then is that there's a deficiency in God. God then has to know something. In order for God to know something, that means God isn't whole, and it also means that now there's knowledge itself is, a, is splitting God into more than one part. You're putting God in time then, which limits him. If you're putting God in time. But even if you want to make an argument that God, in a way, is not limited, it, it can do that, the fact that God didn't know something, and now externally knowledge comes into him, whatever that means, that means that there's now more than one part to God. That knowledge itself implies there's a multiplicity already here. So once you believe in God cannot learn anything or know anything, because again, not only does it take away from God being all perfect, but also that implies that God has more than one part. So now the question arises. So clearly God has to know the future, otherwise you're implying God is not one. I never quite answered that question. If God knows the future, that precludes free will. To me, that doesn't necessarily follow. I mean, it's just a kind of a simple example. If I say to you, do you want a million dollars or a glass of poison? My prediction would be you would choose a million dollars. It didn't take away your freedom. No. no. Well, that's the well, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but I mean, God's about to come, so he, can, he sees it as it's happening. So I, I don't want to get bogged down by this because it's a much larger question. Let's put it this way. If God knew on December, say September 11th, right? December 11th, 2022, that I would stand up here and give this year. So if I woke up this morning and say, do I want to give this year or do I not want to give this year, I have no choice because God knew I was going to do it already. Even if I say I don't want to, I may feel like I'm free, which, by the way, may be a compelling philosophical argument that the very fact we feel free is uh, evidence that we are free. But really what, it is, what one could argue is I feel like I'm free. I feel like I'm making a choice, but I, I couldn't do otherwise. If God knew from a million, billion, trillion years ago that December 11, 2022, I would be standing up here right now, so nothing could have changed that because God knew it. If, and if I don't stand up here, if I make a decision not to stand up here, if I decide, you know what, I'm going to go and get, let's say I have the choice between a million dollars and standing up here, and I choose to go get the million dollars, well, then God knew I was going to get the million dollars, or I'm implying God didn't actually know the future. So it's a very compelling question. Something has to give. This is a big debate in the process called the, the compatibilist, the determinist, whether what, something's going to give. But my point is that if you give on the fact that God learned something, well, there are those who will argue God learns, you're implying there's a deficiency in God, but more than that, you're implying there's something external that God's bringing into him, but now you're saying there's multiplicity in God. At the very least, multiplicity in time. 
there was a point in time when he didn't know and a point in time when he died. But, and then God, there's an external knowledge that goes into God, and now there's a multiplicity. So I'm just, my point is that this idea of yichud, that's one. Number two is, and this is where I brought up, where could, be, where could there be debate here? God's more than one part? Really? So. Doesn't he have multiple names for all the different facets? Yeah, but still, he's still one. So one, meaning, meaning when God, when we, right, in the spheres as well, I've got a lot of order here. When we say God has a hand, when we say God gets angry, God gets upset, God is happy, we use all these expressions in the Bible, but what we're really trying to say is these are ways God manifests himself towards right. us so, so that we can relate a certain way. Correct. It's a it's manifestation. But here's the point. You have a question, Normal? No. Here's the thing. The, there is a concept we know in this world called Christianity. Right. I don't, and I'm not going to take questions on this point, not because I don't want to, but because this is way beyond the topic we're going to deal with. I just want to make a point. There is a big debate among the commentators if Christianity is considered a vodazara. Is it idol worship? Now you'd say, what do you mean? Christianity, again, part of the reason why this is complex is because even within Christianity, there's a lot of debate about what's going on there. They're the firmer people, the less firm people, the, the people take it literally and not, not literally. But let's just take it for argument's sake that Christianity is... Is God, His Son, and the uh, Holy Spirit, a Godhead, a, tr- a Trinity. The question is as follows. For a Jew to believe that certainly it's heresy, and it may even be a Vodazara. But is it a Vodazara? Is it considered idol worship for a, a Christian to believe such a thing? Because after all, although you're believing there's a multiplicity in the Godhead, you're also believing in one God. One God who seemingly is above the other two. So this is a big debate. In fact, Tosfos points out, quoting Rabbeinu Tam, that there was a big problem in the Middle Ages where Jews could not enter into partnerships with non-Jews. Because what you're going to force them to do eventually is you get into some sort of debate, you get into some sort of disagreement, you go to court, and you're going to cause them to swear upon their God, which is an Avodah Zarah, which is idol worship, and it's actually the prohibition of Lifne Iver, a place a stumbling block in front of a blind person, which we know doesn't literally mean putting them in front of a blind person, but it means means causing them to sin, you're going to cause them to sin. So in order to prevent this, there's a lot of discussion whether you're allowed to enter into partnership with a non-Jew, an uh, idol worshiper. So, Rabbeinu Tom comes along and says it's not a problem with Christians. Why not? He said because of the conjugal shittuf. If you believe in God, but in partnership with someone else, assuming that partnership is a, it's a hierarchical partnership, Rabbeinu Tom seems to be of the opinion it's not a Bodhisattva. There's a lot of debate on this subject. There are those who want to read the Rambam, however, that as follows. But the Rambam, there are two psukim you can quote. There are two verses you can source this in. Verse number, if you look, I didn't bring it to you, but the Rambam says in the previous halacha Mishnah Torah, Believing in one God is a positive command. We discussed last week. Having a moon and having faith is a positive command of Hashem your God. And anyone who comes and thinks otherwise. There's an additional God beyond our God. Over below, I say, is in violation of a negative precept. You should not have another God. It's a heretic. Because obviously, you can imagine, everything is contingent upon the belief that there is God. Good. That's the first halacha. Now, look at the halacha we just read. Look at this, this one. Okay, this, this God is one. He starts going through everything. He's one. He can't be divided. And you can, you know, one plus one doesn't equal two when it comes to God, etc., etc. As we know, because the mitzvah I say is, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. A different pasuk. One of Shema, one Shema, and one's Lo Yielacha. 
There shouldn't be another God. So those who want to point out, look at an argument, that the mitzvah of believing, the mitzvah to believe in God, that's universal. Shev mitzvah de Noach, even the, the, the seven Noahide laws, even non-Jews are commanded to believe in, one, to believe in God. However, the, once the, what does the Ramam do? He then moves on to a different paragraph and quotes a different passage to believe in the unity of God. That's Shema Yisrael. That's not directed towards non-Jews. That's directed to Jews. So those who want to argue as follows. Everyone has to believe in, one, in, believe in God. But if you believe in God, and you also happen to believe in a lower God, if you will, the Trinity, and again, I'm not going to get involved in how exactly that, 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 that plays out, that's a command only directed towards Jews. For a non-Jews, and that's coming as I said, I don't want to take questions on this. It's coming afterwards. It's coming as an aset. It's a positive command. A positive command is to believe in one God, a unified God. Shema Yisrael, Shema Keno, Shema Echad. So us Jews, we're, we're bound by believing in one God. For a non-Jew, again, it's false. It's not true. We know it's not true. We believe in one God. That's what we believe in. But if they have this mistaken belief that there is a God, there's a Godhead, maybe they are not bound to believe Hashem Achad. As it's not a command they have to believe. It's only an say a positive command towards us Jews. And therefore, that would mean it's not a Vodazara. It's not considered idol worship to believe in God that also happens to have other parts. You follow? I don't, I'll take questions at the end. Yes? So I think it's an interesting debate. There's those who totally blows out the water and say, what are you talking about? How can it be? God is God. End of story. In fact, I saw last night Ray Bleich from YU. He even says, if you look at the way the Ramam formulates the second of the Yud Gimli Karm, the second of the, of the 13 fundamentals of belief, it's clear he rejects this. I just looked it up now before, and I'm not really sure his read. But it's, again, it's an interesting concept. Just again, just quickly that perhaps one can make an argument that non-Jews are allowed to, again, it's a mistaken belief, we believe universally Hashem is one, Echad, but a non-Jew can believe in there is some sort of sheet of some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, division. division, if you will, in the Godhead. And what that allows us to say is, therefore, Christianity is not a Vodazar. Christianity is not idol worship, which then opens up the door for a lot of leniencies in terms of how and what we deal with non-Jews in various areas, perhaps even going into a church, going into business partnerships, etc. So this is the beginning of that big halachic debate, and it stems from this halacha. Okay. Here's the question, though. Here's the question. And I'll come back to you after. But I just don't want to get involved, because it's, 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 a, it's a totally separate topic. The t- question is as follows. Two, well, two, uh, two things. So this is Hashem Echa, God is unified, God is one. I think there's two ways to look at the multiplicity of the challenge here. One way, as we just mentioned a minute ago, is to look at the world. You see various different powers in the world. They, they must all be independent. Fire, water. Health, you know, if people feel healthy, some people are sick. One must come from one, one God, one must come from the other God. I think what's more relevant, if you will, is not the belief that there are multiple gods in the sense that one God's in charge of the fire and one God's in charge of the water, one in charge of the weather, one in charge of whatever it may be, but rather to look at the world and seeing this was the, Zora- the Zoroastrians believe this, that you see good and evil in the world, it must become from different, they're so in conflict with each other, it must be two different sources. There's a God of good, there's a God of evil. There's the God of, you know, the God of Israel, if you will, and the God of Auschwitz. How can it be, how can it be that it's the same God? Must be different forces. So this is actually when the Gemara asks the following question. We say every day in, in the Lenu, if you ever think, like, what, does, what does that verse mean? And the Lord shall be king over all earth. On that day shall God be one in his name one. One day, far in the future, Zechariah is telling us, God will be unified. So the Gemara is like, and now he's not unified? Now there's multiplicity in God? Like, what's going on here? 
To which the Gemara says something cryptically. The Gemara says, based on the Gemara and Psachim, one we've discussed before, that Amar Ba'achim Rachanina, it's not your source sheets. Lo kolam hazel mahav kolam hazel al besuras tovas Amar Baruch hatovah meitiv al besuras hara Amar Baruch dain emes lo alam haba kulo hatovah meitiv. That this world is not like the future world. In this world, when we hear good tidings, we say hatovah meitiv. God is good. When we hear bad tidings, we say Baruch dain emes. God is just. Whereas in the future, we're going to say God is all good. Meaning to say as follows: that in the future we will recognize ultimately, and this is the answer to the problem of evil, to some extent. In the future, we'll recognize that whatever happens in this world, and we'll see clearly everything that happens in this world, why it happened, and why it's ultimately good. Whereas in this world, the way we, when we see evil, and Rabbi Salvation writes about this extensively, we as human beings relate to evil as evil. It's undeniable, says the Rav, there's evil in this world. Yes, philosophically, we know everything that happens in this world is for the good, but when we approach evil as human beings, we see it as evil and nothing other than evil. But we know at some point in the future... You know, the, way, the, the analogy of Salvation brings down a called Dodi Dofik in his work, um, I don't know what they call it in English, I think I have it over here. Fate and Destiny, Salvation writes in his work, he says, imagine you have a, a beautiful tapestry, and you look at it from the other side. Anyone here ever needlepoint? Or see the back of a needlepoint? The back of a needlepoint, what does it look like? Mess. It's a mess. That's this world, says the rough. You flip it over, that's the next world. You see how all those little knots and things that looked like they were gross and they didn't belong there, it looks beautiful. Says the Gemara, that's what we're talking about here. In this world, it seems like there's a multiplicity. There's the God of Dina Emes, there's the God of Besuras Tovos, of Tova Metiv. In the future, when all of history is laid out in front of us, and we, can, we, have the big, we have the clear vision, we see the front of the tapestry, then we'll see, oh, the same God who said Besuras Tovos is the same one who said Besuras Rose. The same God who said good things is the same God who caused bad things. So again, it looks in this world like there's a multiplicity when it comes to, ev- when it comes to the evil here. In fact, I heard from Rabbi Lepiansky. He said that we say in, in Mizbar Ladavid, we say, Shiv Decha Ubisham Decha. Shiv Decha is, and we say, I fear no harm for you. I fear no harm for you're with me. In the, right, in the valley, a shadow of death. Again, this is talking again, this idea of this pain and suffering. We say, Shiv Decha Ubisham Decha, Heine Yinachamuni. Your rod and your staff will comfort me. So, what's the difference between a rod and a staff? A rod you often used to prod an animal, you hit it to get it to move. Spare the rod, hit the child. A staff you use to support oneself. It's the same idea. That both will comfort me, both the rod, which seems to inflict pain, and the staff, which seems to support one, but ultimately, know what's the point you're inflicting pain on the animal or the child, not actual corporal punishment. It's again, it's all about education. It's all about trying to bring the person to the same place of support, of edifying them, of making a better person. Hey, Nachamuni, ultimately, then will notice how it comforts me. No, no, so I, I, again, as I, I preface with the rub, right? Salvatic says, when we encounter evil in this world, we see it as pure evil. That's we see it as evil. He points out that this is taking us far beyond another tangent, which I'm in breath probably have a question on. But um, the Rosalvatic points out there's a constant tension, therefore, between the Agadita, as in the metaphysical, and the halacha. He says, if you really truly believe, which we do, that everything in this world happens for the good, how? We have no idea. Or so it goes so far as to say, we don't even want to know often why. It almost, it, it diminishes the suffering and pain. And it's insulting to those who go through suffering and pain to say, I can come up with a reason. But we do have to believe, ultimately everything happens for a good reason. Why? I don't know. And the Rabbi Salvatic says, I don't care. 
Rabbi famously said, I don't care why the Holocaust happened, I want to know, now what do I do with it? Why? Because I don't know and I can't do anything with it, it's going to diminish it, it's not a question I can even get involved in. But we encounter evil, there's evil. But if I really believe, says Rabbi Salvechik, that the reason that everything happens is for a reason, so if I encounter someone who's sick, I should say, you know why you're sick? Because, um, you know, there's a good reason for it. Because that's in, con- that's in tension, direct tension and conflict with a mitzvah to Mivakar Cholim, to, to visit the sick. You encounter someone who is, uh, any, you know, any, any of the, uh, and someone who's, someone, I, I think sick's the best analogy. Again, someone's sick, he's looking and saying, you should be sick, but halacha demands of us to heal them. So halacha is, is working in this world. It's, it's demanding of us to react and say, we have comfort, we're comforting the mourners, we're healing the sick, etc. Even though, in back of our minds, we do know there's a concept of, ultimately, everything has a good reason. So the tension's there. I'm not denying the tension, but we, ha- we, also, we live in this world, and halakha is directed to us in this world, where it's not where we, we react based on what the halakha tells us. That make sense? One, one more thought on this idea of unity. Any questions? If it's on the uh, sheet, I'm not taking it. Okay, I'll take it after then. Says, says, says the Rambam as follows. And I think for a lot of us, this idea of Yichud Hashem, God being unified, it's, it's very philosophical. It's philosophical. It's, what do I, okay, I know it. Maybe when I say Shema, I think of it. But what, is there a way we can try to make it a little bit more relatable? So I was thinking as follows. On a practical level, for us, what we could take out of this is the idea that underlying everything in our life should be a certain unity. It all comes back and revolves around the same point, and that is Hashem and Torah. That if you think about it for a moment, every decision in our life can, can revolve, ultimately revolve around this point of Hashem. Asking ourselves constantly, what does Hashem want from me at this moment? The Rambam writes in Hilchas Deus, he says as follows, and this is found, I believe, in your source sheets, this should be the last source. He's talking about first about someone who, uh, who, who has to accustom himself to live by the rules of medicine, to live a proper life, and why it's important to be healthy and to eat healthy and to sleep, etc. He says, For it is impossible to understand and become knowledgeable in wisdoms when one is starving or sick, or, one is, one, or when one's limbs pain him, etc. And then he says as follows, Thus, whoever walks in such ways all his days will be serving Hashem constantly. If someone lives, and, and he's talking about living healthy, and eating healthy, and exercising, and he'll be serving Hashem constantly. Even in the midst of his business dealings, even during intercourse for his intent, and all matters to fulfill his needs so that his body to be whole to serve God. That you can live your life where everything ultimately is revolving around the concept of, this is going to help me serve Hashem. Even when he sleeps, if he retires with the intention that his mind and body rest, lest he take ill and be unable to serve God because he is sick, then his sleep is service to the omnipresent. Blessed be he. Now this is not some Hasidic rabbi talking. This is the Rambam. The Rambam didn't... The Rambam. We know the Rambam. On this matter, our sages have directed and said, and all your deeds should be for the sake of heaven. And this is what Solomon declared in his wisdom, know him in all your ways, and he will straighten your paths. That if you can live life with this idea that the undergirding everything is this idea of uni- the unity of, it's all for Hashem, so then everything in life can be used as a path to serve Hashem. In fact, I'll take this two steps, two different directions on this. Ravarin Lichtenstein this Pasuk, I believe, really was the motif of his life. Ravarin Lichtenstein had a PhD from Harvard. He was quoted many times. And he also was a tremendous Rosh Hashiva, tremendous Tamil Chacham. 
when you look at the way in which he encounters secular wisdom and he incorporates it in, in his shiurim and in his talks, it's very different than the way Rabbi Soloveitchik, his father-in-law, did. Rabbi Soloveitchik, again, PhD, we've discussed in the Thursday shiur, PhD from University of Berlin, philosopher. When you open up his writings on the, on the Gemara, on the Talmud, there is nothing there. No, no quotes from secular studies. No secular wisdom. In fact, my grandfather remembers he was in Rabbi Soloveitchik's shiur once. And he, Rabbi Salvatore said something, and Rabbi Lichtenstein goes, Oh, Rabbi, Tati, whatever he called his father-in-law, this reminds you of a certain sonnet. To which my grandfather said, Rabbi Salvatore turned to Rabbi Lichtenstein and said, I don't need whoever sonnet it is to give me insight into the Gemara. Again, he, he beyond appreciated, he had a PhD, and he incorporates it, and he talks in philosophical jargon, but ultimately there was a certain tension, always for him, between these two disciplines, or Torah and the secular wisdom. For Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, it's seamless because he really epitomizes the idea of beholder echad dehu, and he uh, and the idea that in all your ways know God means that anything can be used as a vehicle to knowing God, to serving God. And again, it's not that Rav Salvechik rejected it; he just interpreted. He didn't interpret it that way. For Rav Lichtenstein, it really meant that you reading his essays in halacha, and he'd quote Milton. He loved Milton, I believe. And he wrote. He, I think he had. A, I think his dissertation was on Milton. And he'd quote these sonnets, he'd quote these, because again, for him, that if you really believe, undergirding everything is Hashem, and it's all about getting back to Hashem, so then, so then, so then, ultimately, anything can be used as a service for God. And lastly, I think this also explains something from this past week's Parsha. We, read, we, just, we just read yesterday, Jonathan just read yesterday, we read along, that Yaakov goes back for the Pachem Katanim, the little vessels, well, what is, what's going on? What's going on with this story? He's going back with Pach Natanim. So the Gemara in Hulin tells us that when it comes to a tzaddik, chavivin, their money, mamona, the money of a tzaddik is more precious to them than their life. Which is a startling statement for anyone, especially a tzaddik, a righteous person like Yaakov. It reminds me, uh, there's an old Jack Benny quote, where someone comes up to him and says, uh, you know, a mugger comes up to him and goes, your money or your life? There's a pause for a second. And the mugger goes, no, and he goes, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. So, uh, for those under the age of uh, 30, Jack Benny was a comedian, Jewish. The, um, what's going on here? What, what's going on here? Chaviva and Mamona. So, perhaps one could say this, I heard from Rabbi Daniel Feldman last week, quoting Rabbi Goldvist, or Shiva Karmiyavna, that if you recognize that everything in your life, and you really believe it, is there to help you serve God. So then, yeah, the, even the little things are a, meth, a way of you serving God. And it's not, obviously, you have to actually believe it. It's not, this, if, you, if you just play, pay lip service to this, so then you're, it's, it's, it's Chaviva Mamona, you're, you're, you have a problem if your money really matters more to you. But if you really are someone who's in tune and in sync with everything in this world, like a tzaddik, like Yaakov, so then you look at your money and you view it as a way in which they, it's there to serve God. And therefore, you really care about it. And what, what, what's the litmus test for this? So this comes back to, this comes to, says Rav Goldvich, a contradiction we often have in Chazal. On the one hand, we've been discussing this idea that the, the physical in this world can all be used to serve God, and it should be used as a vehicle to serve God. On the other hand, we read in Pirkei Avos, how does one become a, a Taman Chacham, a, a Torah scholar? Pas b'melech tochal. Just eat bread, sleep on the floor, drink water, and if you live the bare minimum, you can focus on learning and the more spiritual matters. So Raigoldvicht from Karen Vyavna asked, well, what is it? Is it everything can be used to serve God? Or the minimalist, Pas Melech and he answers, that's how you know whether you're a real tzaddik. 
Yes, everything can use to be served God. But if you're in a situation where all you have is possible melech tochel, you only have the bare minimum, that shouldn't preclude you from serving God. It shouldn't be, as you mentioned in the Thursday shear this week, where Yaakov was sleeping on the hard floors in Bethel. There, too, he re- recognized as an immigrant in a new country with nothing, you could still bring God into it as well. You could still be a religious Jew. Religion and Judaism and Torah is not limited to just when you have the opulence and wealth and the, what we have nowadays, but also in a world of possible melech tochel. So to bring it all together, Yaakov cared about the little pachinkatan, these little vessels, because he, used, he looked at them as a way to serve God. But we know we ha- he was someone who really, truly looked at them as a way to serve God, because when push came to shove, when he had nothing, when he was running away with literally nothing but the shirt on his back, there too he made a pledge to God and said, I'm going to serve you the same way as if I have a multi-million dollars, because everything in this world can be used as a way to serve God. I think that really nicely sums up this idea of Yichad Hashem. Again, Yichad Hashem means God is singular, Beyond what we have in this world, there's no, there's no way to divide God up. But that being said, we want to know so how then can we make it relatable. And I think this idea that that always know God, that everything ultimately in our life, the point of reference is God, and how this can help me serve God. Not only, by the way, does it uplift everything and elevate everything. I'm going to sleep. I'm, I'm going to sleep so that tomorrow I can be stronger, so I can serve God. But also, everything in this world can be used to serve God. So ultimately, that will help us bring this day of unity, of and make it more part of our life. Have a wonderful week.